Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about Hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I am your host, Lori LeBay, and I am thrilled you could join us today. If you liked our opening music, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band, and you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new, Alzheimer Speaks is about raising all voices, big and small, all around the world. We are about sound news, not just sound bites, and we would love for you to be part of that conversation if you've got a story to tell. So just reach out to me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com. I'm going to do a couple of shout outs before we talk about going down the rabbit hole with our guest today. So first, I want to give a big shout out to Dementia Map. If you haven't checked this out, please do so. Go to DementiaMap.com. We are building a global resource directory to, um, for basically everything dementia. For those of you looking for support, on the second and fourth Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. Central, so that would be 2 o'clock Eastern Time, I do a memory cafe, which is sponsored by Arthur's memory care and Arthur's senior living. And uh, you are more than welcome to join us. We do that virtually. And then on the last Wednesday of the month at 10 a.m. Central, Brookdale North Oaks sponsors a caregiver connect. Uh, this month we will be meeting virtually, but next month in May, we hope to be in person and back up to having respite care for your loved one as well. Now, there's some exciting news. There's two opportunities for people who are working in the dementia arena. Mods Awards is open for applications, and you can win $5,000 as an individual or up to $25,000 as an organization for the work you've already done. And that application is open until May 16th. In addition, they also have Mods Ventures, which has three design awards, which gives seed money, fifty dollars to $100,000 per design. And you can find out more about that at modsventures.org. And then many people are interested in Dale Brennison's work, Dr. Dale Brennison's work, and the Dementia Summit, which is going to be held by Central Minnesota's Dementia Community Action Network, known as DCAN, is going to have him live and also virtually on May 12th. And that is free. We are now going to hear from the Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner as they talk about the Footbar Walker. And we'll be right back. 
I love the footbar walker, and let me tell you why. It is the option for my toolbox that I've been waiting for. Let's be honest. There are some clients who, despite our best rehab efforts, just aren't able to return to performing a sit-to-stand transfer on their own. Now I can offer my caregivers an easier, safer option that doesn't involve hoisting their loved one up from a sitting position. I don't recommend this walker for all of my clients, but I do recommend this walker for those caregivers looking for an easier, safer option with transfers. I would also encourage other therapists to add this walker to their toolbox. It's kind of like having my own mobile parallel bars for the client to pull up on. Whether it's a family caregiver at home helping a loved one with Parkinson's or dementia, CNAs in a long-term care facility assisting their patients, or therapists adapting to client and caregiver-specific needs, we now have a very safe and effective option to offer in the Footbar Walker. Check this product out at thefootbarwalker.com. That's it for today from Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. Have a great day, and don't forget, if you can't do it, adapt it. Okay, it is time to introduce our guest right now. And again, we are going to be talking with the author of Down the Rabbit Hole, A Journey Through End-Stage Dementia. And Ms. Zeiss uh, began writing after her husband's death. And at first, it was just to kind of make sense of her own feelings. And then the book turned out to be very cathartic for her. She was able to express her feelings and come to terms with them. And she thought she might even be able to help others, and that she has. Since her book has been endorsed and published globally, she has appeared on Alzheimer's podcasts as a guest author. So today we are going to explore her journey. Well, Veronica, I'm so excited to have you here to talk about your book. I think it's uh, a fabulous. And I, I just realized you're part of the All's Authors, which I just adore. They do such a wonderful job with having over, I think it's 300 authors now that have written on this, on this subject, uh, which is so valuable, not only to family, but to, uh, to professionals as well. So thank you for taking the time. I know writing a book And uh, here it is right here. Writing a book is not an easy thing to do. And it's very time consuming. I've I've thought about it myself, and I still haven't done it yet (laughs) after all these years. So thank you for the work and time you put into that. I'm I'm thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you for having me on. So what made you start writing? You know, I had mentioned in the intro, you know, it was kind of probably more for yourself originally. What did you find in that process in terms of writing? Before my husband died, he was sick for many, many years with uh, with different types of dementia. You can get it much earlier and it lasts much longer. Um, we were both falling apart. And what got me writing, it was about two years after he uh, died, after we had the memorial, uh, I couldn't shake the guilt. It was just like all consuming guilt. I felt that, you know, I failed uh, as his wife, as his caregiver. I felt guilty for, for wishing he had died sooner, for not being able to cope. He wanted to stay at home until the end. So he did until the last two months of his life. And then he was in ICU and intensive care. Um, but I just, 
I was a total wreck. And I started writing, uh, I started writing things down, not knowing it would be a book. And I, you know, started throwing out stuff, emptying the file cabinets. And I found notes from him to me. Uh, And that's what started the book. But it was basically about my guilt. And as I was writing it, I realized he had incredible guilt, too. We we were both guilty of the same thing. Wow. Um, Yeah. And uh, I thought once it started coming out, I thought, well, you know, if I can share it with anybody, maybe it would help somebody not feel as bad as I'm feeling. And what's funny is after the book was written and I sat down and read it from beginning to end very slowly, um, it's, it was cathartic. It started to work. Mm-hmm. It started to work. It started to ease the guilt because I realized I am feeling guilty, but there's really not that much reason to. You know, you, you do at the time you do the best you can with what you have. And that's what occurred to me after reading it. And I think that that's pretty common for people. I mean, we, we build up that we're, we're supposed to be this superhero. Um, You know, we, we love somebody, we care for them. And so we should know how to do this and there's no training. And most of us get very little for resources and most family and friends don't understand really what you're going through. So your support services that, you know, that you had all your life kind of go by the wayside and, I find it really interesting that you ran across his notes of guilt, because I think that that is something that most people don't even consider that they could process that. And I hear that from people living with dementia all the time. You know, they worry about their care partner. They, they can see what it's doing to their lives and how it's changed and how stressed someone is. And, you know, they don't want that for their loved one who's caring for them. It is true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Gosh, when you, you know, you titled the book down the rabbit hole, a journey through end stage dementia. How did you come up with the title? Alice in Wonderland down the rabbit hole. You you sink and everything's crazy. Everything's upside down. Nothing means anything. Mm -hmm. So that's what we were living through the last few years of our lives everything was upside down. It was like we were Alice in Wonderland. So I borrowed the title. (laughs) Well, and down the rabbit hole, I mean, everybody knows pretty much what that means, you know, in in terms of feeling out of control and and out of whack um, with things. How would you describe your book if you were if you were trying to pitch it to to somebody, someone asked you, you know, if I pick up your book, what am I going to find in it? Okay. Well, I would first say it's a true story. It's about us, Mm -hmm. but I've removed us so that I can be more objective and I could put in things that I wouldn't talk to family or friends or children about. Mm -hmm. So it is a true story. Um, It shows the impact that dementia has on both the husband and the wife, on both people. We were living at home alone. So we didn't have children at home with us at the time. It was our story. And basically, the book, it's different from conventional novels or books about dementia. A good example is Still Alice, one of my favorite books uh, on the subject. Uh, 
hers is a personal journey. Uh, it's written as a personal journey. With this book, I've written it from both sides, from what I was experiencing, and at the same time, what he was experiencing in his words. His words are all bold typing, so you don't, it's not hard to figure out who's talking. It shows two different realities occupying the same time period where everything totally becomes distorted. Nothing makes sense. It makes sense to him, and I'm left not making sense. Uh, he was, uh, my husband was a high-functioning executive, and he could fake being sentient, fake not having the disease. Mind you, we didn't know until six months before he died what it was, uh, but he could fake it really, really well. And so the book just shows, it describes the faking. It shows the same reality from two different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And what exactly was his diagnosis? Uh, from, he had a deteriorating spine. Mm -hmm. And when he was a young child, he had many head traumas. So we thought he you know, the doctors, uh, he was on high levels of pain medication, all sorts of narcotics. And he thought that the problem was the drugs and he couldn't go off the drugs or he'd be in so much pain, he'd want to commit suicide. Even the psychiatrist in the pain management clinic agreed with them. We had no idea. He was diagnosed with frontal temporal dementia. Uh, and that is different from all the different types of dementia, PICS, uh, Alzheimer's, they all have their own set of uh, problems with frontal temporal you can get it as early as 35 years of age and it changes your personality and you have no inhibition controls it just wipes out you know normal reasoning you can still function you know what's going on but it slowly wipes stuff out so you have when you're you when you're interacting with people you don't know what proper is and what isn't proper it takes that away and he also, uh, be, be, uh, just before the end, the doctor said it's probably also ALS. And we, we were shocked. We were diagnosed uh, in December, December 23rd. He died June 15th. And at the time, we had no idea it would be that fast that he was at the end of his disease. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's that's a lot. And and yet your assumptions were and yours and the doctor's assumptions made total sense in terms of, you know, if it was the medications, you know, yeah. that can always, you know, uh, I shouldn't say always, but that can cause some of those symptoms and things. Um, in terms of personality changes, was there anything that that stood out that was really, really difficult for you? um to accept as a whole oh uh, yeah yeah the, the man I knew slowly disappeared but it happened so slowly it's so insidious that you don't realize when it's happening you think that they're being mean they're being unreasonable they're picking on you he's changing you think you know well I married one guy now I've got you know, somebody else, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I'm thinking, well, you know, is he an abuser? Like, I didn't see this, like, what's going on? Or, you know, you, you lots of things happen. Um, but he, he changed, we thought, I thought, I'll, I'll give you an example, we were away. 
and we were in the room and he went to turn the, we were in a hotel room and he went to turn the air conditioning up or down. I don't remember. And he's standing over the window where the, the hotel air conditioning is. You press the buttons and he froze. And after a few minutes, I went over, I shook him and I said, well, are you doing the air conditioning? Are you coming to bed? He froze. He was frozen for about 10 or 15 minutes. When he came to, and I told him, he told me I was imagining it, that I was crazy. So things like that, there were, there were physical symptoms. He couldn't see them. I tried telling him, and it was me. I was imagining. So that the personality, the man I married was not the man that he was becoming. Mm-hmm. And he, he really honestly believed I was the one that was changing. It was hard. Wow. Now, did you have children together? Uh, We, uh, he had four children of his own. Uh, He's from England. Uh, The kids are there. Uh, When I married him, we had, uh, I had a small child. Mm -hmm. So we raised my son. My son was our son. And uh, so we had the one. Now, one thing we did learn, and my, my husband was very, very close to our son. And he had, he had, basically pretended that they were a genetic bond and Mm -hmm. I was the outsider I was the wicked stepmother it's funny we'd go on holiday wherever and I was the wicked stepmother they were you know daddy and just and Josh um what when he when he was diagnosed in December after we came home like we came home in the afternoon close to midnight we were both in shock he started talking to me and he said this is the first time in my life I am so grateful that our son doesn't have a genetic bond. He was just so grateful. Mm -hmm. And then we, you know, because I guess, you know, he was a very smart man. He understood genetics. I didn't know until later I started reading up on it. And there's a 30 to 40% chance that you will inherit it. He inherited from his father, but at the time they didn't have the label. He just saw how his father died and acted, and it was exactly the same way as him. So we do know there's a genetic component, but it was amazing that he had such clarity and he was so grateful that our son was not his. Whereas for, for years and years and years, decades, you know, it was daddy and Josh. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. What about his children in, in England? Are they getting tested to see if they have the genetic genes at all? Or um, I called one of his relatives mm-hmm. and um, let them know and asked if they would contact the mother. And I left it at that. Nobody's called me. So I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I left it in their hands. Yep. Yep. Which is, which is understandable. Yeah. Uh, there's not a whole lot you can do about that. No, no. And I was thinking about that and about, you know, our son mm-hmm. and, you know, um, our son is now a doctor. He's a medical doctor in Los Angeles. Um, but he, you know, we were talking and, you know, I was thinking years have passed, would he want to know? Mm-hmm. And he said, if he had thought that he had it and he would be starting to change at around age 35. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know if he would have gone through university, finished medical school and done everything, or if he would just live life and enjoy the moment. Mm -hmm. So there is, 
there is a component there is that, you know, do you want to know or don't you? Yeah. And I, I've asked that question to a lot of doctors and, <clears throat> and I would say 90% have said, no, they wouldn't because just because you have the gene doesn't mean it's going to mutate in any certain fashion. You know, there's, there's odds, but yeah. you know, it, it, it will affect your life yeah. once you know. Yeah. Um, I think I wouldn't to want to know. You what? I wouldn't want to know. Yeah. I wouldn't, you know. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm the same way. I, you know, my mom had dementia for 30 years. And so she started having symptoms in her mid fifties and, you know, I'm 63 or will be 63 in a couple of months. And, you know, people have asked me that and I just said, you know, no, I'm just going to kind of keep living my life. I'll be watching out. I'll be conscious of it, you know, and, and I've noticed changes with myself in terms of word find and things like that. But I've also noticed that all my friends are going through the same, same thing and it hasn't disrupted my life yet. I, you know, so, um, you know, we'll see what happens, you know, with it. Um, my, my mom's brother, you know, he didn't have dementia and, you know, he, he lived a nice long life too. So, you know, it's hard to say my cousins, I haven't heard anything from them, you know, or my brothers at this point. So, you just don't know. You just don't know. And yeah, agreed. At this way, by not knowing, you can mm-hmm. achieve your potential by knowing you might have it, even if you never get it, but you might have the gene, which yep. won't express itself. You don't live the life you could have lived. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So, well, that's interesting. Um, I, I think that that's a question a lot of families don't even discuss in, in terms of, you know, taking a a genetic test. And then I've heard other people who have actually taken a genetic test thinking maybe that they had something else. And then it's popped up that they have, you know, the gene for dementia and then they're shocked and they didn't have any counseling before they kind of took this, you know, home test and stuff too. And that's one of the things that I hear people say, you know, if you are going to do testing, make sure you do the counseling with it so um that you you fully understand you know what you're what you're dealing with there um was there one chapter in the book that was more difficult for you to write than not um yes it was um he was the book starts off at his funeral, at his memorial funeral. Mm-hmm. And then it goes and it describes, it describes what death looked like. Mm-hmm. We, and it's right at the beginning. The very beginning of the book is the worst part of the book. Mm-hmm. You know, if it like, if people don't want to read really horrible detail, mm-hmm. you know, miss the first 30 pages, like just uh-huh. skip. Um, it, that the part that was the hardest was describing him in delirium we he was sleeping and he didn't wake up I remember he was at home he wanted to be at home until the end and he had days when he was normal Mm -hmm. and then there were days when you know he was off the wall Mm -hmm. and uh, on normal days he'd say let me stay at home you know let me die at home and I'd agree Mm -hmm. and I think as long as you're not violent and you're not like too destructive we can manage it Mm -hmm. Um, so we were both in that stage, 
But the hardest part was describing what emergency and ICU looks like when you're in the hospital and you're unprepared because suddenly the person that you're with doesn't wake up. Mm -hmm. They're, They're in delirium, which means their eyes are open, their mouth is open, they're screaming like you're vivisecting them. And there's nothing you can do. And the hospital can't drug them because the hospital wants to see what the tests are, what the results are. Are there any drugs there that shouldn't be? Mm-hmm. So you, you have this person. And then when they realize what's going on, they do medicate them, but they're still in that delirium. That was the hardest, was describing every detail. But I felt I had to get it out. When we asked the doctors and the psychiatrist and even, you know, in, in the hospital, when I asked, how do we know when it's the end? How, how long does it take? What does death look like? Nobody would say anything. Mm-hmm. And so I, I described the most painful part as vividly as I could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, the journey of death is so different for every individual, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just, it's hard. I would imagine it is very hard, but as a family member going through that, you do want answers. You, you want to know what to look for. You want to be able to pace yourself kind of, and, and, and know where you sit in the process um, because it is so exhausting and it is, you know, it's scary. And it's, there's so, there's so many feelings, you know, just swirling around, you know, within you. Uh, I remember when my, um, when my dad was dying and um, they gave us the little, you know, hospice book, the little blue book, you know, to kind of guide us. And, and I knew my dad's body was shutting down. I could tell his breathing. And my brother's like, where's the book? Where's the book? And it's like, you know, I think mom grabbed it. I think it's downstairs, you know? And so he went down and, you know, my, my dad really at that point just had minutes left you know, the book wasn't going to help, but you want that something concrete, you know, if it's a voice telling you, or if it's something written, and it just doesn't work like that, you know, death doesn't cooperate in a, okay, this is exactly how you're going to, how you're going to exit, though I'm sure you had information in generalities that they gave you, Um, we all kind of want a timeline. Well, actually, at that time, this was seven years ago, Mm-hmm. They didn't. Okay. They didn't in emergency. They didn't in ICU. Uh, they didn't anywhere, uh, which was surprising. Uh, there, oh. there was no um, the the last day he the last hour he was alive. Like I, you know, you'd go into the hospital. You could be there twenty four hours a day if you wanted. I'd go. I'd read to him. He liked Jeffrey Archer, so I'd read to Jeffrey. Ar- I'd read Jeffrey Archer's. After a while, I was too exhausted to read. So I sat there and I regret that now. I sat there. I didn't even hold his hand. I was just too tired, just sitting there. Uh, totally, all my words were spent. And uh, the very last day I went to see him, I think it was four or five in the morning and something had changed. He was breathing very, very badly, like mm-hmm. trying to breathe. And he was down to no weight. He was totally emaciated from starving for 35 days. And um, I asked the nurse, I said, can you give him something to like, and she said, no, that'll stop his breathing. 
And I said, well, how long can he suffer? How long can he try gasping for breath? He's not there anymore. Oh, it'll take two or three days. So I begged, I begged for morphine, like an overdose for anything. Like I begged for two months, nobody gave anything. Um, But that, that was awful. And Ah. so I, I left him, I left him right away. And I, I, you know, I, well, before I left him, I, I, well, when the nurse wouldn't give him anything, I begged him to die mm-hmm. and I gave him permission to die. Then mm-hmm. I begged the nurse some more. Then mm-hmm. I went home because our son was home for medical school to be with daddy. Mm-hmm. Um, I went home to wake him up to bring him. And I thought we'd spend the two or three days in the hospital. One of us would be there every second. Mm-hmm. By the time I got home, the phone was ringing. The hospital called. He's dead. So I, it's too bad that they can't say, you know, he'll last maybe an hour or less. I would have stayed and held his hand, but two or three days, you figure you'll go home, you know, between you and your son, between the two of us, we'll always be there. So he doesn't die alone. And we missed it. Wow. That that's sad because that wasn't that long ago for them not to have not to have given you some guidance in the hospital that is absolutely ridiculous because that information has been around or that they didn't you know even did they discuss hospice with you at all no no not at all no because Uh, they just no all they did was say uh if you put in a feeding tube it can last up to 30 days Without a feeding tube, he'll go within seven to 10. The seven to 10 turned into 35 days. Wow. Uh, They gave him water, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, solid water and a spoon that he could suck up. Uh, But it just went on and on and on. And he lost weight and lost weight. And nobody would tell us anything. There was no hospice. And and the thing I kept, you know, begging was, you know, more drugs because he was... uh, you know, if you're narcotic naive, which means you're not accustomed to narcotics, mm-hmm. very little narcotics can stop your breathing. If mm-hmm. you've been on narcotics for 10 years and you have higher and higher doses of them, fentanyl, hydromorphone, like all of it diluted, he was on heavy masses of drugs for pain, prescription mm-hmm. drugs only for pain. So he had a high tolerance. So whatever they were giving him wasn't enough to stop the pain. So he was still in pain, but he was trapped inside his body, growling from the pain. And uh, they, they, every time I begged them, oh, no, we'll stop his breathing. And I'm thinking, like, you know, that would be better. Yeah, that would be you know? a gift. Yeah, I, that would be a kindness. Oh, my gosh, that yeah. is so sad but it you know what what really makes it sad too is that as individuals as family members we think when we go to the hospital when we're talking to the doctors that they get everything a family is going through not just the patient but just you know and that they understand and that they would would give you the information to be able to make choices because it's I can't imagine. I, I just can't imagine being you watching that over and over and not and knowing that he's in pain and knowing that no one wants to help, you know, and just put him through that suffering. That, that's that's just sad. I know that I learned during my journey um, to call in a patient advocate 
And I don't even remember where I learned that, mm -hmm. but uh, there was one time when my, my, my dad was dying. Um, he had brain cancer and he was in the hospital and we went to visit him. And about two weeks earlier, I had a dream of my dad being really gaunt. And at that point he was really healthy and it didn't make any sense, but he ended up landing in the hospital and I go to see him and he is just, and I was there the night before and he was fine, but that morning he was just totally sucked in his whole face. You know, he barely had any color and he was gaunt. He couldn't communicate. He couldn't open his eyes. And I talked to the nurse and I said, something's wrong. Something's wrong. And, and she's like, no, no, this is normal. I'm like, this is not normal. You know? And I said, uh, so, something's wrong with him. And she just kept putting it off, putting it off the doctor, you know, he'll be in and I'm like, he needs another scan. He needs a doctor. He needs, he needs somebody paying attention to him. And she just kept blowing it off. And I went down to the patient advocate and they actually got another, I said, I want a second opinion. I said, cause excuse my language. I said, this is bullshit. I know my dad and this isn't normal. And this isn't how we looked yesterday. And there's no reason he should have failed that much overnight. And so they get another doctor up there and they here they look through the chart and his doctor late, late, late the night before took him off a medication to prevent his brain from swelling cold Turkey. And the second opinion said, you never do that. Never, ever do you take somebody off cold Turkey. They gave him a shot and in 20 minutes, he was sitting up watching a basketball game. And the doc, this, you know, the, the guy who did the second opinion said he would have been dead if you weren't called. But, you know, we don't know that as family, you know, we don't know that there's other people we can maybe call in. And then, you know, in some cases, there's nobody to call in. And it's a horrible feeling when you know in your gut what's going on. And, you know, you, you know your loved ones. So I, I just, I just, a, I'm sorry you went through that. And I'm sorry there wasn't more support. Um, even in emergency and ICU, they should still be talking about, you know, palliative care and hospice. I mean, when you're in there, those are major decisions that families need to know about and be educated on. Yeah, well, um, we, we just, I just wanted him to be medicated so he would be out of pain yep. and nobody would do it. Yep. Nobody would do it. And that that's the sad part. Yeah. And they had, they had his uh, surviving power of attorney. Mm -hmm. uh, so that from 20 years ago, from 10 years ago, from six months ago, mm -hmm. and I brought in all the originals to make sure no life saving measures. Mm -hmm. And nobody listened. Nobody listened. They said, well, he's got dementia. We, we don't listen to that. But here it is from before dementia. Uh... You know, I brought everything in. It, it's sad. It's sad, but he, they couldn't make him comfortable enough because then they would have stopped his breathing. Well, at this point, when you're in pain, you don't have your body, your mind is going, what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's horrible to watch somebody in pain like that. I had a uncle in the hospital and, um, you know, his wife and his daughters were, were sitting there, but they were I mean, they were so shocked. He, he went into the hospital. He, he only ended up lasting a few days. And so they, they were just grieving and they couldn't sense his pain. But I, I, I mean, I could, I could literally feel his pain. 
And I told the nurse, he needs, he needs more medication. This is ridiculous because you'd see him clutching his chest in pain, you know, and they were really good. Thank God about doing that because it was as somebody watching that, I mean, you're, you're feeling their pain, you know, you're it's, it's, and none of us want to live in pain like that. None of us, I mean, that, that's just like you said, uh, why make somebody suffer in terms of that? But there are, like you said, you can bring in the documents and doctors still can argue against them, which is kind of like, you know, my head, like, then what are we doing the documents for if you don't have to follow the rules? To me, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. Yeah. And, and I, I think that they, they need a little bit more education. And I understand that they take an oath, you know, to, to, you know, help people live, but there comes a point in time where we're all going to exit this planet and we should be able to do that in a dignified manner too. And, well, painless. Uh, yeah. Painless. And, and not in, not in pain like that. I, I just yeah. unbelievable. Um, Wow. Well, I, you know, I think your book has so many enlightening chapters. I, I like how you um, share kind of the two realities that exist, because a lot of times I think as family members, we think it's just our reality and, and, you know, they, they have their own thoughts, but we don't look at the depth that their thoughts and what they're perceiving is truly their reality. Yes. What they're, what they're feeling and seeing. And it's just as strong as our reality. It's just <laughs> in a whole nother realm and can cause a lot of conflict and, and emotions with that. So I think that that's really neat that you honored that um, in the journey. And I, I would think, did that bring you some peace in finding those notes? Um, I started reading them there were nasty notes as well, mm -hmm. uh, but there were the, the ones where he's apologizing and whatever. The, the notes, they helped. They really, really helped. It was in his handwriting, I guess, you know, I, I don't know when he was doing them over the course of a year or whatever, long before he was diagnosed, he was writing stuff um, and, you know, squirreling it away in, in the cabinet because he knew whenever went in the filing cabinet. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, his filing cabinet, not mine, but it did make me feel better. Mm -hmm. But right after he died for the, for, for the two years before I started writing, um, I even went to his psychiatrist asking for help. I, you know, I, I probably had a form of PTSD mm -hmm. stress, who knows what it was. I just couldn't function. I, I just, you know, couldn't function. Um, it was hard. And I thought before then, you know, when he's gone and the stress is over, I can relax, I can sleep. After he died, there was no reprieve. There was nothing. There wasn't sleep. It was still, I was still on full speed. Mm -hmm. So it, it was hard. But yes, the notes did help. Yeah. Did you kind of loop and keep reliving things? Um, no, okay. <laughs> no, no, no. A couple of things stayed in my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, I couldn't get them out of my mind. Um, I'll share one with you. After he was diagnosed, he begged to go to Cuba one last time to Cuba. And my son said, absolutely not. You know, don't put him on a plane. You don't want to put a patient in a different surrounding. I didn't understand. You know, mm -hmm. I really didn't. I was like stressed out. 
So he bugged me, bugged me, bugged me. After three months, I couldn't take the fighting, the everyday fighting. I thought they're they're wrong. He doesn't have frontal temporal lobe. He doesn't have dementia. It's just mm-hmm. the drugs. It's the ALS. Mm-hmm. And I'll give him the holiday. I couldn't fight with him one one more day. So we went to Sandals, mm-hmm. and I went horseback riding. I asked him, "Do you want me to take you to the?" to the restaurant in the morning for breakfast no honey and he was all happy no honey I love you have fun don't hurry back Mm -hmm. and he had his walker and he had his wheelchair because he was having mobility issues and I also asked at the front desk if they could send somebody to the room to check up on him in case he wasn't going out for breakfast so off I went for two hours two and a half at the most Uh, with his blessing I came back the room was ripped apart He's on the floor screaming at me that I tried to kill him. And apparently he got himself to the front desk with his walker and he wrote a note that I was trying to kill him. And he made sure they photocopied it five times. and They gave it to everybody at the front desk and he had one copy for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was that I cannot, I cannot get that scene out of my mind. That is still looped in my mind, Mm -hmm. but other less, significant ones no I've just let go Mm -hmm. I've totally let go yep yeah oh my goodness that that yeah that's a big one you know and then when you're out of the country and you're like what's gonna happen yeah (laughs) with with the accusations oh my goodness well they, they were you know smart enough to know it wasn't real and I asked a doctor and I had the doctor there talk to the psychiatrist here uh-huh. And uh, they kind of sorted it out and got us on, on a plane and coming back home. But we have to medicate him so he wouldn't be disruptive on the plane. It yeah. was it was a nightmare. But, you know, I, I have no idea where that came from, because before I left that morning to go horseback riding, he was very nice. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. when we got home, he denied it all. He denied wow. it all. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah. You know, FTD is a definitely challenging, you know, disease. There's no, um, there's no getting around that. And most people don't understand that because people don't talk about it, you know, because it it is bizarre. And uh, I think some people think, oh, you've got to be making that up. How could that be? And it's like, well, walk in my shoes. (laughs) just a day <laughs> and test the waters but yeah there's not a whole lot you can do to control you know those things and and what I've heard because I haven't experienced it firsthand is like you never know when it's going to happen either when you know when the tide's going to shift oh yeah you can be you know Dr. Jekyll one minute and in the same sentence before you finish the sentence you've turned into Mr. Hyde Mm-hmm. you know, full steam, you you don't know. And then a second later, you're back to being nice. And you're telling the person they're crazy. They're mm-hmm. imagining it, you would never do such a thing. Yeah. So it's hard. Did he did you find that he did that with other people as well? Or was it pretty much the two of you the majority of the time? He only interacted with doctors. Mm-hmm. And he and the doctors didn't know he had mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um the neighbors, they'd say hi, or I'd have them over for an early dinner, and he'd excuse himself, and he'd be, you know, tired. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I got the worst of it. Uh, one of his uh, doctors, we were at the pain clinic, he was having a procedure in his back. It's like they give you an epidural for pain huh? every few months. And th- this was 
a doctor, surgeon, mm-hmm. the pain clinic, and he had seen him for a few years and he's, we're going in. And all of a sudden he says to the guy, I don't want this. I want a different procedure. And he starts arguing with the doctor and the doctor picked up. There was something wrong, but uh-huh. did not like, I, I know the doctor didn't see dementia. The doctor just said, you're abusive. I'm the physician. I don't need you as my patient if you're behaving this way. And he just started to go nuts. And he's on the table ready to be, you know, anesthetized, you know, uh-huh. to have the procedure. And the doctor is arguing, like he's arguing with the doctor and the doctor is like, you know, get out of here. Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and uh, I thought very quickly and I said to him, you know, you're, you're so brilliant. You're such a brilliant man to my husband. The doctor is here. The operating room is here. Everything's waiting for you. Why don't you hold the mirror and tell the doctor what to do? And he can do what you want. You can hold the mirror, uh-huh. uh, you know, the doctor. And the doctor looked at me seriously for a minute and then just about peed laughing, uh-huh. just about peed laughing. And then my husband calmed down and apologized to the doctor, apologized for his wife being so horrible <laughs> and said, I'm ready. I'm ready to have the procedure. I'm sorry for my wife, doctor. I'm ready to go ahead. But that was a glimpse into, yes, he can be abusive to other people, but they're not around enough. Yeah. He had the procedure. He went home. Nobody knew at that time he had dementia. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, and to, to balance that out, I mean, I've, I've heard many individuals who have gotten divorced over the behavior changes because, you know, they didn't have a diagnosis and, you know, they didn't understand what was going on. And, and I think that that's very common out there. We talked about it. We mm-hmm. did a couple of years before we talked about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we both agreed that we'd both go to the same psychiatrist, mm-hmm. have the psychiatrist talk to us. Mm-hmm. And then it was, then he agreed with me that he would take some uh, antidepressants or anything to mellow him out. Mm-hmm. And then I wouldn't divorce him. Mm-hmm. But we did talk. We had that divorce discussion. Yeah. You know, we came up with the solution, but at the time we just thought it was pain and he needed a caregiver for pain. Mm-hmm. And I said, in order to remain, I need you to be less, well, don't know what the word is, disruptive, nasty. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, anti, uh, antidepressants, they worked mm-hmm. for a while. Yep. Everything works for a while. It yeah. seems like, and then. But then it's important to to go in and and get adjustments and and things. Well, I I can see you know your book is very different from others because the way you write, I mean, it is very authentic and it is raw and it is honest. And I think people need to hear that side. So I appreciate you again um, being brave enough to do that because that's a that's a big thing you know, to, to share your life in that way, um, with people and, you know, your true story. Cause I'm sure some people will judge, you know, who haven't been through it and say, well, that's not happened to me. Well, maybe your person doesn't have what my loved one had either. You know, I mean, all of that stuff makes a difference. Did you find, um, in publishing at all, I have heard this from, from people with dementia, that sometimes when they are telling their stories, let's say on Facebook, you know, earlier in their journey and stuff, where they get bullied, where people say that's you're you're faking it, that can't be. Um, no, what I I got the opposite. A couple, mm-hmm. 
two people come to mind on on Facebook Messenger. I got a Messenger message because, you know, I'm open on Messenger. Uh-huh. Uh, my name is there so they can message me even if they're not my friend. Uh, one lady said, thank you for talking about guilt, for wishing him dead, and for everything you've done. She said she read my book. She picked it up in the library, mm-hmm. read it, and she couldn't put it down. And she said she couldn't tell her doctor or her children or her family that she wanted her husband dead. He was just mm-hmm. so hard. Mm-hmm. And she thanked me for being brave and that normalized her feelings. Mm-hmm. And then later another man messaged me. He had bought the book or picked it up somewhere. And he thanked me as well for releasing him from his guilt. He couldn't talk about it to anybody, but when he saw it in black and white, it validated his feelings. So I got good, good responses. Great. Great. I I'm glad because I, I do think, I do think that we can teach and kind of lift one another up through storytelling because we all have different journeys and so many of us don't want to share our stories. And so when you don't share your story, then you, you keep yourself kind of isolated and alone. And one of the things that I have heard over and over since stepping into this space is what a difference it is to not feel alone. You know, that, that in and of itself is so empowering and so healing. Yeah. Um, One thing I would highly recommend to anybody that's dealing with dementia Mm -hmm. Go to a dementia support group. If you're a caregiver, Mm -hmm. go to a group where you and your loved one are in a group with other people, caregivers and their, 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 whoever they're looking after, join a group. It's really, really important. We did that very briefly at the end Mm -hmm. and it really, really helped. We didn't know about it earlier, but when we found out about it, I had to talk him into it Mm -hmm. Uh, and he wouldn't go. I bullied him into it. Um, (laughs) But it, it helped me. It really helped me. And I saw in him, even though he didn't want to participate in the group, it helped him as well. Yeah. Yeah. The memory cafes for people with dementia and their loved ones or care partners, um, they're fabulous. You know, there's over a thousand of them out there that we know of. Um, you can go to, to, um, to memorycafedirectory.com to find those. Uh, some have gone virtual, like I do one. Um, the second and the fourth Wednesday of each month. And we have stayed virtual and the group has decided to do that. Um, And, you know, but there are plenty of others that are now open back up and gathering again. And just the friendships that are developed are so close. Um, The safety that they give each other, you know, the permission to just be who they are. No one has to worry about how anyone's acting or reacting, everybody just gets it. And, and yeah, very, very powerful. I wish we had known about it. We would have gone two years sooner, but we weren't Mm -hmm. diagnosed. You know, it's something that's invaluable. Exactly. And I also learned coping skills when Mm -hmm. I went, Uh, coping skills, what to do at home to calm the person down, Mm -hmm. you know, so it was really important. Yeah. Well, and they teach each other to take care of themselves as well, that it giving permission that it is okay for, you know, you to go get your hair cut or your nails done or grocery shopping or just take a nap, you know, and, and try to pull in help and things too, which I think is really good. Um, Veronica, is there anything else that you wanted to share with us? Yeah, 
this I've learned over the past years. When a person first dies, you can choose to stay in your guilt, to stay miserable, to just stay where you are Mm -hmm. and not have a life. Or as the surviving person, you can pick yourself up and go on. I've learned that, you know, with time, it's easier to get rid of the really, really bad memories and just try to remember who you married, what the good was, and hang on to that and try to remember them the way they were, not what they became. So Mm -hmm. I'd like to share that. I think that's important. So you don't get stuck in a hell of your own making. You know, there is life after After death, there is life. You can choose to have a good life or you can choose to wallow in depression. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's, I think that's very important. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I have, I call something tears, fears, and joy. And the, the tears are for the person that we lost and that we want back. And, you know, I found myself going down the rabbit hole um, in, in feeling bad for all the loss. But then I realized, which I think ties into what you're saying, that, you know, you couldn't hurt so bad if you didn't love so deeply to begin with. And, you know, where, where was that love? You know, it was, it was through those good times. And that just kind of pulled me out of the rabbit hole and said, in a really strange way, how lucky am I to have loved that deeply? Because some people never love that deeply to hurt that bad you know, as well in that whole process there. So, you know, I would encourage people, you know, go and get this book down the rabbit hole, a journey through end stage dementia by Veronica Zeiss. And that uh, she spells Veronica with a K, not a, not a C. And Zeiss is Z-Y-S-S. And um, you can also email her at Veronica at Rogers, that's plural.com. So thank you, everyone. And thank you, Veronica. This was an important conversation. I think so many people struggle with caring and guilt and loss and so many different things. And your authenticity and your willingness to share so openly um, is greatly appreciated. So thank you. Thank you very much. And for our audience, you know, we always encourage you to like, click and share. Don't keep nuggets to yourself. Pass them along. Somebody else needs them to take care. We'll talk to you next time. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Wayshowers who will help your journey a lot easier.